What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver, and on the other line joining me is Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I got up a little early today so I could go do some grocery shopping. I walked out my front door, and what was waiting for me but a spider suspended, I think about five feet off the ground, but probably with the web that was about five feet hanging down from the ceiling, greeting me right as I stepped out my front door. So you know what I did. I had to do it for the gram. I'm taking slow-mo videos. I'm taking portrait mode. I'm really digging into this like natural evolution. But then I realized if I just blindly put that on my Instagram story, or if I texted that to you right before we were about to you know, record a podcast, I might throw you off for the entire day because last week we learned you, you and spiders do not mix. So rather than psych you out and try to flu game you, I... I didn't do it for the gram. I didn't do it for the likes. I kept those spider pictures tucked in my pocket. And now we're going to go forward talking about basketball with you in a healthy state of mind. Uh, Yeah, you just, I mean, you just ruined it entirely by bringing it up before the episode. (laughs) But I think I'll be able to push through either way. I appreciate you, uh, your sense, being sensitive to my arachnophobia, though. That was very nice of you. But Bringing it up in conversation right beforehand, probably not the smartest move going forward, Ben. I just half food poisoned you, you know? It's like I didn't go the full (laughs) lasagna like they were talking about last week where everybody's just laid out on the ground and can't move. I maybe just like dabbed a few, uh, you know, drops of like uh, tainted water on your salad and, you know, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, uh, we've got some news to get through. I thought it was a very big game on Friday night between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Los Angeles Clippers. And we're going to dig into the implications of that game, what it says that we have two big-time juggernaut teams right now in the Bucks and the Lakers kind of going forward. But before we do, I thought we should dig into some of the coaching drama that's uh, you know bubbling up here at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. You know, it's an annual ritual. Those poor teams in AAA just can't keep things together. They bust apart at the seams before we even get to Christmas. And this year, it seems like it's happening in two spots, uh, New York and Cleveland. So let's start with this Knicks situation. Uh, very strange weekend, Michael. And you're in New York. I'm sure you've got some insight on this. So I'm going to mm-hmm. throw it to you. But it sounded like... They fire Fizdale after letting him coach the practice on Friday. They put out, uh, they don't put out a thank you note until two days later. Uh, the front office, uh, you know, the GM, uh, Scott Perry, and the president, Steve Mills, don't meet with the media to explain the decision. Uh, they have their bounce back game with interim coach Mike Miller. And it's not that Mike Miller. It's not the three-point shooter Mike Miller. It's a coach Mike Miller. Uh, They play hard, they compete, but they wind up losing because Julius Randle bricks a last-second free throw, and they lose by one. And now they go forward uh, with a new regime, potentially with the front office, uh, you know, on the hot seat, but at least a new coach uh, in place. What do you make of all of this? What is your big takeaway from the Fisdale drama, Michael? And was there anything in that sordid history or that sordid rundown that I left out because I'm sure there's other wrinkles no, that I, I, mean, I might have forgotten. The about. Knicks are the most embarrassing organization in the league. They have been for a very long time. I don't think any of us who follow the league were sized at all by Fisdale's firing. Uh, you can go back to even this past off season with the moves that were made uh, in you know building this roster with 35 power forwards and uh, a whole bunch of youngsters and they you know f- the failure to to lure Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving or any notable free agent uh, and it 
Sure, sure. Hey, Michael, can, can I ask you a question on that? Have you reached the point where you're just like bored of killing their front office moves because it's like so self-evidently bad, like especially the power forwards one? Like, I feel like the shelf life on the power forwards thing lasted like 72 hours and it was like, ha ha, power forwards. And then everybody was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I mean, they're stuck with this in, in, for a while. <laughs> it's not going to work. And just watching Everyone knows them it's not play basketball, work. you have situations where like Julius Randle and Taj Gibson will run a pick and roll and like the defense will switch and Randle will realize that he has the basically the exact same size defender on him and no advantage and he'll kick it back to Taj and Taj will throw up a three and it'll hit the, the back of the rim and clang 35 feet in the air. So, I mean, it, it's it's been... A travesty to watch on the court all year and it's like i don't really blame i don't really blame fizdale uh, <laughs> at all he really wasn't able to show implement any type of stylistic identity uh, you know the offense was wretched but to be fair to him his point guards have been injured for most of the season or dealt with off-court issues uh, so he's basically entrusted Randall to run the show and kind of given him a green light every time he grabs a defensive rebound to to push in the open floor and make decisions, which is a great recipe for disaster. So, you know, I, I don't blame Fisdale. That said, the effort on both ends has been deplorable. Um, you know, uh, we saw... Uh, a, a New Orleans Pelicans team put up really poor effort over the weekend in a, in a blowout loss, but the Knicks are kind of that almost every single night. So it was, you know, you would talk and mingle before Knicks games uh, at Madison Square Garden on the court with other writers and just people around the league. And, you know, it was basically just a daily thing of do you think, you know, if they lose by 25 tonight, Fisdale's going to get canned right after the game? That was basically like the, one of the the starting how to start a conversation with people. So it, it didn't surprise me one bit. It, it's terrible. That is so morbid, Michael. <laughs> you're just like walking around the funeral waiting to see who's next. I mean, is, is that what you're saying? It's crazy. Um, when you were describing the pick and rolls, man, I, w- I was smiling over here and I was like, yep, that sounds like the formula for a team that's 4-19. <laughs> like they're getting exactly what they deserve if that's going to be how they play. Um, I think it's very important to say this. NBA players, we're in this, you know, era, NBA players are brands, NBA players are business, you know, some NBA players are orchestrating their teams to like, you know, pull, you know, superstars with them or arranging trades to like make sure they can play with the right guys. Even players who aren't that good, like the New York Knicks main players, are certainly savvy enough to see the big picture. If these guys are not playing hard, it's not because, or it's not only because, Fisdale isn't inspiring them with the right halftime speech to like go out there and get this done, right? Their effort level and their, you know, prospects about how they think the organization is going to go, their buy-in, how hard they're going to play and all of that is absolutely tied to front office and ownership. There's no two ways around it. And when I looked at their summer, they sold it as a bunch of, you know, short-term deals with flexibility in the future. I read it as a lot of guys, basically mercenaries, getting paid who didn't really have investment at all if this was going to work out and just assumed like, look, if it doesn't, they will trade me because, you know, something will have to give. And that's sort of how this franchise operates. Right. So I think when people say, oh, you know, Fizdale is being thrown under the bus. Oh, the effort level, uh, you know, or, or some people might justify it by saying, look, they weren't playing hard for Fizdale. Look, that is an impossible task 
basically impossible task to get these kinds of players to play hard when you don't have an alignment of vision from the top down, when you don't have uh, like aged players, you know, you've got RJ who you're really trying to, you should be trying to build around, but you've got all these players who are older, who are vets, who don't make him better and don't complement what he does well. Uh, and then you have, you know, shifting priorities between are you rebuilding uh, you know, and taking the slow route, or are you trying to go chase Kevin Durant and, and try to turn this thing around more quickly? Players aren't stupid. They get it. And, you know, the effort level thing is not going to change because of a coaching change. Um, and I think, frankly, that's insulting to David Fisdale. I'm not his biggest fan. I thought he was fine. Um, you know, I thought it was a decent hire for them considering the circumstances. But to be like, oh, yeah, the team didn't play hard, so the coach had to go. It's like, that is so short-sighted and dumb. And I think, frankly, the worst part is a lot of people outside the organization get that. Does the owner get it? Does the front office get it? That, I'm not sure. No, I mean, and it's it starts with ownership and uh, a front office that... You know, doesn't really have a ton of. I mean, Scott Perry has experience in other spots, and I'm sure he's, you know, mortified to to some degree with what's happening. Steve Mills didn't really have a lot of front end experience before the Knicks hired him on the basketball side. Uh, it's it's bad. I mean, I should mention that you know they were, you know, they had they were competitive down the stretch of a few of these games over the past couple weeks. And then in the last like five, six minutes with a point differential of, you know, the, the margin would be within, you know, five points. And then all of a sudden you'd blink and it would be 15. Like they just don't know what to do at the end of games. And some of that is on the co- coaching, but a, a lot of that is more on, uh, you know, the, the skill sets that were there and expected to mesh that never made sense in the first place. And a lot of these guys were you know, they're playing, they're on short contracts, which means they're playing for their next contract. So it's like uh, their incentive to play and buy into team basketball, as you said, is very low. Michael, I'm going to ask you to do something very dangerous here, almost as dangerous as confronting a spider face to face. (laughs) I want you to go inside James Dolan's mind. Will you fire Steve Mills before the end of the season? If I'm in his mind right now, the answer is, I mean, no. Because oh. I would, like M- Michael Pina, I would probably let Mills go. You know, it gives me no pleasure to end someone's uh, job, but I don't know why he deserves to stick around in this with these responsibilities. Um, yeah, really, what is the case for him to stick around? I mean, I, I don't know how you make the argument, right? Like, the, the Porzingis trade... Um, you know, the return package wasn't great. I guess you've got the future draft picks that you can sell. The young talent on the roster to me is not very good outside of RJ, who I do I do think has potential, but the other young guys I'm I'm not I'm either lukewarm or worse on all of their other young prospects. I don't think any of the veteran guys really are keepers, you know, from a long term standpoint. Um I don't know what he, like if he has to go to bat for himself, I don't know what he argues with other than come on Jim like I'm the guy who knows you best right we've been together for so long like I think that's the best argument he's got and if you head into you know the season telling Jim Dolan that you know you you're going to you know potentially punch your way into an eight seed with all these veterans on the roster now and some talented young pieces and it's Fisdale's second year 
and you know the bottom of the east is basically up for grabs as as humongously depressing as that sounds it's like you then you can't even head into the trade deadline and look to trade some of these guys like marcus morris has legitimate trade value and after december 15th he'll be available um and to move him when he is like by far your best player right now like by far um it's just a testament to the failure of the season and the failure of you constructing this roster. I need to walk everything that I just said back. The best <laughs> argument for Steve Mills to keep his job is he can go to Jim Dolan and say, I did not pass on Luka Doncic. And there are GMs out there who did, and they're keeping their jobs, so therefore I should not be fired. I think that's the best argument for him to keep his job at this point. I'm being completely facetious, but that's all I've got in his defense. I think he needs to go by the end of the season. Like you said, you don't root for people to lose their jobs, but there's the evidence is just staggering at this point. The change of directions, like I mentioned, the strikeouts in free agency, the raising of expectations, the unfulfilled expectations. I, you know, I think that they could even be in a situation. Don't you think it could work if they just got rid of Steve Mills and said, Hey, Scott Perry, this is your show. Like that could, that could work. Well, right? Yeah. But you have to give him like autonomy in the role. And I don't know if, Dolan will do that. Forget even about like the basketball ops side of things and making personnel decisions and drafting players. Like that's all wonderful. But like putting out press releases when Richard Jefferson makes a joke on the air calling a Nets <laughs> game or, or, or it's just like, uh, you know, le- letting yourself be in a situation where, you know, Kevin Durant is on Hot 9-7 saying that the Knicks aren't cool and it's because of Dolan. It's like there's, there's really nothing that Perry can do there because um, the, 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 the quickest way this team is ever going to contend for championships is through free agency, I think. I, I don't see them ever. I mean, they never sign their own draft picks. That's just not what they do, as has been seen over the past however many years. So, like, you need to re. It's it's gonna just it's just gonna take some time, and I don't know if anyone there right now is is able to turn this around. I'm with you, and that's why we're gonna sidestep the normal conversation that you have in these situations, which is, well, how can you turn around the Knicks? What are the steps that they need to take going forward? The whole everyone thing knows has the answer. To change. <laughs> Everything has to change. The owner has to change. I, you know, all of it, right? So it's not even worth having that conversation. It's not even worth having a conversation about who would be the best replacement for Fisdale. I could throw out Barack Obama and Jesus Christ. Those guys aren't going to turn this thing <laughs> around, right? So forget about it. Um, I do want to have this question, though, another hypothetical that I was thinking about all weekend long. You are Masai Ujiri, right? So you're in just maximum position of leverage right now, coming off the title. You're the hottest name among executives in the league. You actually do know how to turn around an entire organization. Uh and the Knicks, of course, are, are thirsting after you, according to reports. What is your list of demands to take this job, right? Knowing that Dolan is probably not going to sell the team. What are you asking for if you're Masai Ujiri that would actually get you to take the Knicks job, given that, you know, you've got your, you know, you're completely running the show in Toronto. You can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, and you've got a great number two guy there in Bobby Webster who handles a lot of the uh, the day-to-day stuff for you. So it's a great setup in Toronto. What is your wish list from the New York Knicks? This is such a great question. Uh, first of all, I can't wait to hear what your answer is. But from the top, <laughs> <laughs> from the top like... First and foremost, I just want a blank check when it comes to paying the luxury tax. Like, we're going into the tax every year if I want to go into the tax. First, like, I don't want to worry about 
luxury tax bills, the repeater tax. I don't want to hear it once. Like, it's just not going to come up in conversation. So right there uh, from the jump, that's what I want. I also obviously want to be the highest paid uh, GM uh, or president of basketball operations in the league. I'm thinking this is probably way out there, but I just have the number of 15 mil per year on a six-year deal. That's probably shooting through uh, whoever the highest paid GM in the league is right now by a wide margin. And I want my salary to double if we win the title in those six years. Um, you know, I want I want the Knicks to, to invest in my Giants of Africa endeavor, which the Toronto Raptors have invested in and, and generously so. And I think one of the, the bigger and most important things that I would ask for is I want 49% ownership stake in Madison Square Garden and the New York Knicks. And, oh my gosh. And, 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 and that flips to 51% if I have to have more than two face-to-face conversations with James Dolan at any point during my tenure. Okay, so I'm hiring you as my agent because I thought I was going to be driving a hard bargain here, but you just asked for half of a $4 billion enterprise. So I I think I was actually uh, undershooting things by comparison. Here's, first of all, we're in the same ballpark with salary. I think it starts with a $100 million five-year offer, okay? We need to have that. That's the number, 20 mil a year. He's basically like a max-level player, that's what Ujiri wants, right? That's what I'm going to want if I'm him. Second of all, though, I want $30 million of the $100 million up front. I want it in gold <laughs> bars, and I want it explicitly agreed to that I can pose on the cover of any magazine of my choice surrounded by $30 million worth of gold bars that belong to James Dolan just so that the terms of the relationship are set up front, right? I don't, Because I, I'm worried about the long-term damage to my reputation if I have to go associate myself with the Knicks. I always want to be able to point back to that picture and be like, look, guys, come on. He gave me $30 million worth of gold bars. <laughs> what did you really want me to do? That's number one. Number two, um, I, I need to see personal investment from James Dolan which is difficult because obviously I don't want him in the way. So first of all, there's going to be a complete hands-off policy for all basketball decisions. He has to green light everything that I want to do. Like you're saying with the luxury tax, there is no ownership veto and I need that in writing. However, that's not enough. I need a personal investment from James Dolan to make sure he's on the right page. That means he has to retire from his music career, period. There's no more JD in the straight shot. It's done. Okay, he needs to conduct himself like a normal NBA owner, uh, no side projects. So that's out. If he's not willing to give up his passion project, then he's not committed enough to the New York Knicks. Therefore, I'm not going to sign with them. Wait, can I can I butt in for two seconds? Wouldn't wouldn't you want Dolan to take his band on tour to Australia for the next 10 years instead? Isn't that a better outcome for you and everybody involved? Ultimately, I think the owner is such an important ingredient to success in the NBA that the absentee plan where it's just like some other, you know, guy is like stepping into those meetings, some other Dolan (laughs) would be damaging. I think we have to just sort of work with what we've got, you know, kind of uh, remake the clay a little bit. And it's going to start with a turnaround story from James Dolan. The music is out. I'm all about basketball. Here we go. But I'm not going to, you know, uh, I'm not going to get in a size way. My next rule, 
Dolan can only attend games if the team is above 500. All right. We're not going to have any more of those photos of Dolan angry, crossing his arms courtside with the models that always tend to go viral and just don't paint the best picture of uh, the franchise as a whole. No meltdowns, no random coach firings or like forcing the front office to go give a press conference right after the game. He's only going to be in attendance if it's a good mood time period, right? That's also going to allow me enough of a runway to kind of build the team into a winner. I also want an entire row of seats, front row at Madison Square Garden. So like basically a section, probably 20 seats for my friends and family for every event, period. Now I'm not gonna demand 49% of MSG like you did, but I basically wanna be (laughs) able to have my squad rolling deep at MSG every night of the week, okay? I like that a lot. I think think that's my my, uh, portfolio of requests. If you're James Dolan, and Masai Ujiri came to you with this layout, including the music, including the 30 million of gold bars and the photo shoot, do you pull the trigger? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, <laughs> so that, that's the most damning thing you could say about an owner, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, with the bar is just so, so low. I also want to just throw in, I think that uh, I would also ask for Charles Oakley to be hired by the Knicks as like a team ambassador or a community ambassador or something like that just to stick it to him that's even better vp of basketball operations charles barkley he's (laughs) in he's in the door there's no question all right uh enough you know mocking the knicks uh let's get one final question in there and this is one of my favorite questions and by the way it's from ben in adelaide one of our many loyal australian listeners Uh, michael I, i don't know if you saw it we got a little wrap-up uh, report about how we performed on Spotify in 2019. And good news, Open Floor business is booming. The Open Floor globe was coming in from 68 different countries. And Australia was the number one growth country in the entire world for the Open Floor podcast. So we really appreciate you guys. But what I love about the Australians is there is definitely a cultural disconnect every once in a while between the USA <laughs> And Australia. And I think this question really seals it. Ben writes, my family and I are having a holiday trip in the United States next year. My uncle has wanted to see the musician Sturgill Simpson live for his entire career, and he's never been able to go. They were very excited to see that he has a concert scheduled while they are going to be in the United States on their vacation. Without hesitation, they have booked tickets at Madison Square Garden on May 16th. And they are specifically coming into New York for that night. They have been to New York a few times previously, and they were excited to explore other areas of the United States. They have raised concerns, however, that this concert might be canceled if there is a playoff game at Madison Square Garden that night. They do not follow basketball, and I scoffed at them when they asked whether there was a risk of this occurring. However, there is a particular challenge when you are pulling the trigger and telling them to cancel their backup accommodations outside of New York and to fully commit to Madison Square Garden for that night. So I ask you, Ben and Michael, can we safely rule the Knicks out of the playoffs so that my family can go see the Sturgill Simpson show and not worry about canceling their other accommodations? Michael, 
They're sitting over there antsy. And I know this feeling because I was hoping and praying that Michigan football was going to get the Holiday Bowl in San Diego. And I had the hotel lined up and I was ready to go on StubHub. And instead, they got the Citrus Bowl in Florida. So I don't get to go. So I understand the logistics of the vacation planning. Can Ben from Adelaide's family members rest easy tonight? This is uh, Sturgill Simpson season right now, I think, at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> they, they have absolutely nothing to worry about. Uh, uh, you know, Sturgill can be there for the next 10 years on that date, and I think they'll be fine. So make it an annual thing. Come once a year. See Sturgill. It'll be great. You know, they're actually going to have Sturgill Simpson represent them at the draft lottery, I think. <laughs> or actually, <laughs> unless unless uh, Steve Mills is scouting him as a second-round pick, you know, who knows. Um, you're going to be fine. Go to the concert. Amazing email from Australia. Hey, one other real quick coaching drama we've got going on here. Joe Varden of The Athletic reported that some Cavaliers players were a little upset at Coach uh, John Beeline, who came from uh, Michigan basketball, where he established a, a really great uh, run for the program, um, because... <laughs> He doesn't necessarily commute, communicate in the NBA style. He's got his own lingo. Um, he is maybe a little bit you know, harder on the players than they're used to from NBA coaches. And I guess the implication was some players were going to assistant coach uh, J.B. Bickerstaff rather than going to beeline uh, for instructions at, time in the, at times in the games. Of course, this sort of brings back the dynamic in Cleveland you know, when LeBron would sort of uh, turn to Ty Lue as opposed to David Blatt and, you know, the America's greatest fighter pilot coach would sort of, you know, ultimately was, uh, uh, was let go uh, by Cleveland. Um, is this a big deal? Is this just players grumbling? Is Beeline going to be in trouble here? Uh, what do you make of this uh, scenario? I do know Tristan Thompson kind of came out and pushed back against it and, and said he didn't want, you know, players to be sources for stuff like that. And he thought it was just kind of a normal course of business for them to go to assistant coaches. Uh, but what do you think, Michael? Is, you know, the Cleveland slow start uh, evidence of, uh, you know, a potential misfire on their coach? Uh, this is based on no reporting, but uh, just applying the whoever smelt it dealt it rule to the situation. Uh, oh. Tristan, Tristan Thompson is clearly the source to, to this story. I mean, coming out, clearing his name publicly, making sure that everyone knows that he's not the source when he actually is. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, Starting at a kit, the Cleveland Cavaliers 2020 season. Okay. Exa- exactly. Uh, I, I mean, this is a bad basketball team, a rebuilding basketball team. It, it This report doesn't totally shock me in any way. I mean, I think there's some veterans on this squad who have experience at a really, you know, at winning at a very high level. Um, and this has got to be pretty rough. I know this is, you know, this isn't LeBron's first season in Los Angeles away from Cleveland, but the guys who were making regular finals trips with him, it's still pretty tough to adjust to, I would imagine. And if someone comes in and they're running the, the organization and the team as if it were a college program, that would really ruffle some feathers. So I can see that. And then also, not based on any reporting, but just putting two and two together, the fact that this report came out and then uh, a day later or the same day or later that day, uh, you know, there was a report by Woj that Kevin Love is available in a trade. So uh, Tristan Thompson and Kevin Love tag teaming as sources in this article, clearly. Uh, now, I, I, so I, I just I think that 
I think that Beeline is when you when you commit to a coach and you're rebuilding and you give him the five year deal, you have to stick with it. You cannot fire this guy and completely undercut him based off of an article or anything like that. So I think he need he needs time to implement his season. He'll implement his program and his in his system and he'll learn. Uh, obviously, this if. I'm sure that players have already told him face to face what they, you know, what they liked and what they don't like about his style, and he needs to adjust. That's just—it's a players' league. It's not about the coach. He'll figure that out. Yeah, I agree with just about everything you said. I don't have extended commentary on this subject, but I think what you're talking about with the trade stuff is really the main takeaway here. Um, I think Beeline was brought in to coach Garland. Sexton right. and Chetty Osman, right? And guy, the guys of that generation. And this Cleveland team has accumulated a whole bunch of veterans who could be trade chips, who make no sense whatsoever and are rightfully feeling like they're just wasting their time in Cleveland on a team that's terrible and has no real motivation to try to win games, right? So to me, this was like sending up the signal flare of like, hey, Kobe Altman, don't forget, I still exist. I don't want to be treated like an 18-year-old kid because I'm not an 18-year-old kid. And please trade me. That's sort of how I read, uh, uh, you know, this article. I do like how you turned into a federal investigator, though, trying to out the out the sources and out the snitches. That's a very Always. interesting look for you, <laughs> Fed Pina over here. But anyway, what are you going to do? Um, I think that's enough on the Cavaliers. It's a situation to monitor if the grumblings get loud, uh, you know, louder. But I also think that they're one of the most obvious sellers uh, when it comes to trade deadline season. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, let's double back on this game from Friday night, Milwaukee Bucks versus Los Angeles Clippers. The Bucks ran them off the court. Uh, it was Giannis's birthday. Doc Rivers had the one-liner after the game saying, look, we went all over town looking for a gift for Giannis, and we decided to just give him the game. Uh, the Clippers looked flat early. Uh, they got run off the court late. You know, it was garbage time for basically the entire fourth quarter. What takeaways did you have from that performance? I think Milwaukee's on a 14-game winning streak right now. Uh, as we tape on Monday, it's their longest since 1973, which is no joke whatsoever. And they're doing it, you know, probably a little bit under the radar uh, because they do just about everything under the radar. But what did you take away from that game, which I think some could say, hey, that's you know a, a matchup of maybe two of the top three teams in the league? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't put too much stock in any individual games throughout 
the regular season. I mean, it's one of 82. Anything can happen in this particular game. Paul George and Lou Williams combined to attempt zero free throws. Like, I, I don't really put too much stock in a game where something like that happens. Uh, I don't say that to discredit Milwaukee. And I think that looking at their 14-game win streak, which is you know amazing, uh, I think that's the bigger takeaway for me personally. And I mean, you, you, you look at the teams that they've defeated in this in this stretch, you look at how they're doing it with, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, playing off their same the same playing style that they've had over the past uh, season and a half. Uh, you know, the same shot profiles. They're protecting the rim. They're uh, allowing threes, but from quote unquote the right three point shooters. Uh, they're doing it without Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, they did not have Chris Middleton for half of this streak. And I have a, a, a quick little, I guess, a trivia question for you, Ben, um, that really highlights how impressive Giannis has been. And I think I just gave away the answer. But guess who leads the Bucks in three-pointers in this 14-game winning streak? Oh, my gosh. Is it Giannis? <laughs> it's Giannis. It makes or, it makes or attempts? Both. That is crazy. Yeah. Man, you're blowing my mind. You come out with the sobering facts and the shake-up stats, man. That really just sent me on a loop. I love it. Um, wow. So the whole world owes uh, Splash Brother Giannis an apology. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, he's shooting 33%. Um, so let's not go crazy. But the team is, I mean, when you think about the Bucks, you think about him driving and kicking and Kyle Korver drilling threes and Brooke Lopez and Ilyasova and DiVincenzo. These guys are all shooting 30% or below from behind the arc uh, in this winning streak. So they're winning with defense. Uh, they're winning with, you know, getting to the basket, finishing at the basket, making different types of shots that, you know, the types of shots that they'll need to hit, I think, uh, when the going gets tough in the postseason, which is what this is all about. And when I look at the Bucks, honestly, what they've been doing here is very impressive. And, you know, I think they might be even a better team than they were, a better regular season team than they were last year. And that's really saying something. But, you know, they could win their neck, like every game from here on out by 50. And I, I would just want to see this in the playoffs. So I don't know if that's unfair to them, but... I, that's just how I, I, I kind of view the Milwaukee Bucks based on how they play, if that makes any sense. It does. You're giving them a little bit of the James Harden treatment that some other people, you know, just like the baseline of skepticism of you have to prove it. And I think that's uh, understandable. I was, I, I, to me, I, I reacted to that game with the combination of going to see the Lakers just drill the Timberwolves on Sunday night. Anthony Davis has 50, and it's just like the lightest possible 50. And it it continues this week where they just kind of put away Portland, Utah, Denver, and it looked very, very easy for the Lakers. I guess I put those two games together, and my mind started immediately fast-forwarding, skipping steps to June. And I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, if we've got Milwaukee who's won 14 straight, the Lakers who have won 14 out of 15, if we've got Milwaukee who's number one in point differential. The Lakers are number two in point differential. If we've got the top two MVP candidates, the top two all-star vote getters from last year, are these teams on a collision course? Is it too early to say that? So I explored that topic in my uh, my post-up newsletter, uh, which went out on Monday. I encourage everybody to subscribe to that and give it a read. But it's just a fascinating dynamic between 
LeBron and Giannis, because I think we would call LeBron the player of the 2010s, and I think a lot of people would call Giannis, you know, probably the player of the 2020s, like him or Luka Doncic, right? Um, when does the baton pass? Is LeBron ready to, to pass that baton? Uh, is Giannis ready to take it? You know, if they were to meet in the 2020 finals, would this be sort of like 1991 when Michael Jordan rises up and takes the league for Magic Johnson? Or would it be more like 2007 when Tim Duncan said, sorry, LeBron, you know, <laughs> it's not your league yet. Like, it's going to be your league, but this is still my league. Um, I could see that one going either way. When you throw in the fact that you've got this small market Milwaukee versus large metropolis Los Angeles, you've got the slow building effort around Giannis versus this fast track free agency and blockbuster trade, uh, you know, formulation uh, from the Lakers. When you've got Milwaukee, who you know hasn't been to a final since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar left, and the Lakers, who are looking for their 11th title since taking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from the <laughs> yeah. Milwaukee Bucks, you've just got these juicy narrative contrasts between these two franchises. Um, I'm in, Michael. Like I know everyone wants to talk about, oh, the ratings are bad. Da, 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 da. Like, okay, that's fine. But you're telling me you're not going to sit in complete rapt attention in June if we get LeBron versus Giannis in the finals? I'm in. That series would be incredible. And we haven't even said, oh, you mentioned AD's 50-point game, which, you know, I watched that game this morning, and it was it was, it's really funny because as you described it as him getting an easy 50, and, like, in the first quarter, he's just cherry-picking. Like, <laughs> and it's fine. <laughs> right. It's, it's okay. It was- it was a casual 50 ball, man. Yeah, so that series would be would be great. And for all of the um uh the contrasting characteristics that you outlaid and uh just talent-wise, the they're the two best teams I think right now in the league. It's kind of it's difficult to to dispute that based on how the I mean the Lakers look really good and they can play a lot of different ways. I wrote last week on uh, SB Nation about the Rondo LeBron partnership and how when you know when Rondo first went to the Lakers last year there was obvious uh, skepticism about that partnership working because of spacing and both the guys need the ball in their hands and right now you know when those two are on the court the Lakers are as good as they can be. Uh, so, uh, and I totally expect Rondo to continue to shoot 50% from behind the three-point line for the rest of the season. But, uh, so I, I, I think that the that series would be tremendous. And I think the question of who the best player is in the world uh, right now is, is, is up for grabs in a really fascinating way. You have, you have Giannis, you have LeBron, you have, uh, you have Harden, you have uh, Kawhi, you have Kawhi. Yeah. Kawhi, Luca, if you want to throw him in that conversation, even though I think it's a little too early, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I don't like, I don't know if I, like, if I had to pick right now, I would, I would, take the Lakers just because I, I think they have more star power for sure um, and more ways to well, beat yeah. you. They have more star power. Uh, I think they have a big psychological and experience edge. I mean, LeBron's been in more finals games than Giannis has been in playoff games. And then head to head, he's 14 and four versus Giannis like during their careers. So it would be very much like, um, you know, master versus apprentice. You know, I think mean, right. that's how it would be sold. And 
But what's great about that, though, is Giannis is not like this deferring apprentice who's just going to like bend over backwards praising LeBron. He didn't want to do Space Jam 2. He turned it down. He won't work out with LeBron during the offseason. He wants to punch walls and kick holes in things because he's that competitive. <laughs> He'll rip his jersey with his mouth. I mean, the guy is a competitive maniac, and it would be such a fascinating head-to-head matchup between those two guys. I think just to tie this off, though, it's important to remember that the rivalries for LeBron have always just been a little bit off, right? Like the Tim Duncan one was a different position. Um, you know, they met multiple times, but it wound up being more of a team battle during the San Antonio and Miami years versus just a strictly like head-to-head LeBron versus Duncan thing. Uh, then you go to the Warriors era, him and Steph played d- different positions in totally different styles. And then Kevin gets there and that's the natural rivalry, LeBron versus Kevin. But the Warriors are so stacked that it, it really took the focus off of those two guys individually, even though Kevin was spectacular in those series and in some moments really outplayed LeBron and deserved more credit than he got for doing so. It wasn't that pure head-to-head matchup. And then you throw on top of all of that, we all sat around for a decade waiting for LeBron versus Kobe in the finals, and it never happened. And even LeBron said in 2015, he's like, man, I hate that it never happened. The whole world wanted it, and we just didn't ever get it done. So with all of that backstory, like late career LeBron turning in an MVP caliber season, if you want to call it the last gasp, if you're if you're feeling uh, you know uh, spicy, you can call it that, versus Le- uh, Giannis trying to get over the hump, sort of like a 2007 or 2009 LeBron for the team that drafted him, or sort of like a 1991 MJ. Man, that is just delicious. Wait, Ben. Can, ben, can I throw a quick question at you? First of all, you you disrespect the Boston Celtics by not bringing up Paul Pierce with oh, the Paul LeBron Pierce. Oh yeah, rivalry. Come on. But right. Well, you, but you don't get that in the finals, is what I'm talking about, right? So like, you have these other positional rivalries for LeBron, but like when we're talking about the biggest stage, sure. there's no Kobe. The KD one's a little weird. The Steph one doesn't quite fit, and the Duncan one, it's like respectful. But at the same time, it's not really like mano a mano, right? So I do think the Giannis versus LeBron one would be almost in a class of itself. It'd probably be closest to KD versus LeBron, but it might even be more elevated than that, given that you know Giannis doesn't have that number two superstar like you're describing. For sure, and we'd get to see them defend each other in crunch time. It would be it would be awesome. Uh, what I think is really interesting, just to to put a button on this, would be. Let's say hypothetically the Milwaukee Bucks get to the finals, the Lakers get to the finals, Lakers beat Bucks this year. Same thing happens next season. Does that like how funny would it be if if Giannis's inability to get past LeBron and AD, you know, if that pushed him from Milwaukee in the same way that LeBron felt he didn't have the talent around him in Cleveland the first time around? I think that would be a very very interesting subplot throughout that that those battles. So LeBron's chasing Giannis out of Miami. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Yeah. Bingo. Sort of like the war- the Warriors <laughs> chase Kevin Durant out of Oklahoma City. Oh, man. You're going forward to the darkest possible timeline for Giannis Inc. You don't want to crown Giannis whatsoever. I love it. Um, this is just something, you know, an early finals preview for people to get the mind rolling a little bit. It's It's definitely on the table. Both those teams, like we've described, are playing great basketball. Hey, uh, Michael, we got a really nice email a little bit ago from a guy named Abdul, and he had read your piece about Trey Young uh, on SB Nation, and uh, he had some takes. He writes, this piece was a breath of fresh air. It's rare that you hear the national media mention Trey for what he really is, 
a superstar. There's a lot of hemming and hawing about the Hawks having a losing record, but let's keep it in perspective here. Trey's best teammate is Jabari Parker, and his second best teammate is dot, 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 Alex Len. Trey fell into the trap of many superstars in the making in that he became too good too fast. He is only a sophomore, for goodness sake. He's averaging 28 and 8. All this stuff that he's not a winning player business is nonsense. Watch the Hawks for one game and you'll realize that are few to no competent players on the roster aside from Trey. I love that email from Abdul, but what I really loved, Michael, was this email that came in right around the same time from Arye. And Arye writes, After hearing you guys and the rest of NBA Twitter fawn over Trey Young the past few weeks, I was genuinely shocked when I checked the standings and saw the Hawks were 4-16. and 16. Now, obviously, this email is from a little ways back. He writes, I get that he's Trey is putting up big numbers, but can we please chill on the hype until his team at least hits 500? Exhibit A, Trey put up 37-7 and seven against the Rockets, but they lost by 47 points. Until this team starts doing a modicum of winning, isn't Trey Young just a cute story? So, Michael, I'm giving you the full perspective of Trey Young takes here, and I'm guessing you're going to side more with Abdul because, obviously, you wrote the piece kind of in favor of Trey. <laughs> yeah, you think? But, but can you make the case— uh, for somebody like Arya, that maybe he is uh, underappreciating what Trey is doing? Well, the piece that I wrote was about the difficulty and the kind of the conniption that Atlanta's front office is going to have going forward building around this guy. Because for as marvelous and stupendous as he is on the offensive end and, and the growth that he's shown from his rookie year to this season, putting up genuine all-star numbers, he gives it back just about immediately on the defensive end. I mean, it's it's difficult to uh, think of a worse or more detrimental team defender and individual defender than Trey Young right now. And Right, and we're waiting on defensive real plus minus for this season. As far as I know, they haven't published it yet. But last year, I think he ranked dead last or close to it in the entire league. Right. Like it's, it, the eye test matches the advanced number. Right, and 538 has an on-off metric that's kind of similar to real plus minus that ranks uh, Trey Young dead last among all defenders in the league. So he's not, he's not good on that side of the ball. And... Atlanta's uh, the the troubles facing Atlanta right now as they try to get to the playoffs and and you know be competitive at that level is how you do, do you build around this guy who do you draft who do you sign what skill sets are necessary to supplement him and like I'm coming from a, a place where I want to not just jump to the weaknesses right away because that's just not a real healthy way to look at it, I think. I, I think when he's when you have someone who's 6'1", 180 pounds or whatever he is, averaging 29 and 8 and shooting 39% from deep and taking the most ridiculous threes in the league, like, he deserves some applause for that. And it's not his fault necessarily that John... Not necessarily. It's not his fault that John Collins got suspended for taking a banned substance. And that's a huge loss to this team. Jabari Parker is playing great basketball in large part because defense is boxing one Trey Young on a regular basis. So I've got a, a bunch of different thoughts here. First of all, I'm glad you raised the defensive point because you saved me like a three-minute rant there. But it is a big-time problem, and they've got to continue stacking as many two-way wings as possible around him 
to cover up for that and to minimize the damage there. I and I this is a yet another shameless plug, but on my Reddit AMA from last week, which I appreciate a lot of Open Floor Globe members for participating in. I said that I think the most under-discussed or one of the most under-discussed headlines of this season is John Collins letting his team down with that suspension. This is a central piece of what they're trying to do. He is their number two guy. The whole offensive structure is built around him and Trey Young, their two-man game. It all collapses. It all falls on Trey's shoulders. All those big numbers that uh, you know both his, his critics and his fans like to point to have to become bigger because that was their other option. Someone has to pick up the slack, and unfortunately, it's going to be on Trey's shoulders in kind of an unhealthy way because of a decision that John Collins made. It's inexcusable. He's on track to probably be a max guy for them eventually once he gets to that second contract just because they're going to need him, um, and he has played pretty well during his first season and a half um, or, or maybe two and a half seasons, but look, man, you can't do that. You can't let your team like that down like that. And if that happened on a higher profile franchise, he would be getting crushed. And same thing for DeAndre Ayton, by the way. Um, both these guys deserve, to me, more criticism than they got for putting their teammates in that type of situation for letting their organizations down. Now, the reason why I'm a little bit higher on, say, Trey Young than I was on a player like Devin Booker in his first couple of seasons um, and I think it's similar scenarios where they're kind of being let down by the environments around them. They don't have a lot of talent. Um, they're being kind of asked to do too much. Booker has learned how to make his teammates better. He's gotten much better at that. I think Trey just gets that more intuitively um, than Booker does. And I also think because Trey is clearly a point guard and Booker's you know more you know in this you know bigger guard mold. I find Trey's defensive limitations a little bit easier to stomach than I do Booker's because at least he's the smallest guy on the court and you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of how you build lineups around him that are going to be able to be uh, effective uh, defensively, right? So uh, you kind of put those things together. That's why I'm still in on Trey. Uh, I very much like him. I don't love him. Uh, but the numbers are phenomenal. The shooting range, like you mentioned, is phenomenal. And he's just a fun player to watch. So Arye, um, I think you need to realize Trey has his second, you know, his best player, his best teammate has been taken away from him. So that's one hand tied behind his back. They traded out a bunch of veterans. They let a bunch of veterans walk this summer. So they surrounded him with rookies and super young guys. So he's completely surrounded by unproven players. There was going to be a lot of losses this year, basically no matter what. And you just need to, you know, allow yourself to enjoy the Trey Young experience without necessarily harping on the wins and losses. It's still early enough in his career where he shouldn't be judged by those kinds of things. If they're still having this terrible of a record in year four, guys like me are going to start getting on Trey Young's case. Uh, and that will be the appropriate time, just like we wanted to start putting pressure on Devin Booker once he got to year four and five without substantial team progress. Uh, but for right now, it's simply too early for you to be as angry and you need to join Abdul and Michael on the right side of history here. I think it's amazing that we went through this entire conversation without mentioning Luca, um, Luca or Steph, which are the kind of the two, the two guys who he's unfairly compared to, uh, you know, Luca, obviously because the Atlanta Hawks traded, uh, traded Luca and, uh, for the, the rights to draft Trey young and a future first round pick, which became Cam Reddish, who is a, 
I guess we'll see what what he what he's gonna be. Uh, I'm a little higher on Cam than I think a lot of people are. He has he did not have a good start to his career, and then you know the 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 Steph Curry comparisons, and I think comparing anyone to Steph is absurd because uh you know what he did three i guess it was four years ago now when his first his first mvp season and his second mvp season were just two of the most magical revolutionary inspiring things that we've seen in basketball in our lifetime so to to make those comparisons it's just it's difficult and steph was doing it uh against defenses that had never seen anything like that before trey now has to be in an nba where you know, Steph came before him. So he's not the revolution. Uh, kicks, he's not kickstarting a revolution like Steph did. And I think that that matters. And that should be also kind of added into the context here. For sure. Hey, on, on the topic of other young guys and how to properly, uh, you know, grade them or assess them, we got a couple emails on New Orleans Pelicans forward Brandon Ingram. Derek writes, how did you guys have a most improved player conversation without bringing up Brandon Ingram? It's not only you guys. No one seems to be talking about this kid as an MIP candidate. Statistically, the jump has been amazing, but the eye test proves he is a possible all-star and a number one or number two option on a very good team. Why is he getting so overlooked? He's in the fourth year of his career, not the second year, like way too many of these candidates that I hear discussed by the media at large. And just to underscore his point, Ingram is averaging right now 24.6 points, seven rebounds, and four assists. And most impressively, he's taking five three-pointers a game, and he's shooting 42% uh, on those threes. Uh, You know, last year, by comparison, he was taking fewer than two per game and shooting just 33%. So that's, you know, clearly a big ramp up there. Uh, On top of that question, we got another one from Josh in Melbourne, again, Australia representing. He writes, now that we've got a few weeks under our belts, who would you have taken in hindsight if you were the Pelicans uh, from a trade package standpoint? Would you rather have Brandon Ingram from the Lakers or Jason Tatum uh, from the Boston Celtics? At this point, I think Ingram has eclipsed Tatum and he's looking even more dynamic. So, uh, Michael, what do you think on these two questions? Uh, Should Ingram be in the most improved player conversation? If so, why did idiots like us overlook him? And then what do you think Ingram versus Tatum? Well, first of all, I think I said Brandon Ingram's name, but we did not we did not go into depth uh, about him in that conversation. So I just want to oh, to defend myself open, here and the open floor globe <laughs> is slipping. It's it got to be listening comprehension, guys. I actually didn't remember that you mentioned him, so I'm slipping too. I'm I'm right there with the emailer, but go I, on. I had a long list, so I don't blame anyone for 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 over hearing it or underhearing it, whatever the right phrase is. But I, I mean, I, I agree 100%. I think Ingram's, the strides that he's made uh, in New Orleans has been great. Getting out of Los Angeles has been obviously really good for him. The fact that he's confident enough in his three-point shot for the first time in his career and he's drilling them is really good to see. Uh, I think that, you know, one of the reasons, that the most significant reason why he's not getting buzz is the New Orleans Pelicans have been trash. And uh, I, I think a lot of people are waiting to see how he can coexist with Zion Williamson, who has not played a game yet. And uh, a lot of Brandon Ingram's positives come with the ball in his hands. And so, you know, how does that mesh with Zion when 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 Zion is back in the fold? Do they complement one another? The fact that Ingram did not receive 
a contract extension uh, when a, a lot of guys in his class did. And I think it was, you know, there's health reasons involved for sure. But then it's also, I think David Griffin wants to see how Ingram meshes with, with the other pieces in his young core. It does not make sense to, to lock him up. Uh, you know, I think heading into this summer, as a restricted free agent, Ingram is going to get paid a lot of money uh, by whoever is not... No, pure. Pure Max. I mean, he's yeah, a Max guy. Now. No doubt about it. He's 22 years old, putting up these types of numbers. He gets to the to the foul line. He, he knows how to draw fouls. He can create uh, his own shot just in just about any situation. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of his. It's really cool to see him blossom the blossom the way he has in New Orleans. Uh, I, I think his his defense and his rebounding are two underrated factors. He's growing as a playmaker as well. Uh, I want to see him. I want to see him in a winning environment for for starters. I want to see his team play better when he's on the floor than when he's off the floor. And I want to see what he looks like beside Zion Williamson before I'm, you know, through the moon about this. So a couple of thoughts on Brandon Ingram. First of all, to respond to the emailer, the reason he's not in the most improved uh, player conversation as much as he should be in your mind is because not only are they losing, but they came in with some expectations. They're officially disappointing. So a player like Trey Young gets in this conversation because people pretty much thought the Hawks would be bad. There's extenuating circumstances and he's putting up bigger numbers than he has before. So people will maybe look off their record a little bit. With the Pelicans, it is a little bit mind-blowing to me that Ingram's production has not translated to more wins. They got some talent down there. I know it hasn't been um, an ideal start, especially with Zion being out and him being such a major part of their momentum and, and everything else like that, but they've got a proven coach down there. They brought in a bunch of veterans. They've had a good culture. I thought they were going to be competing for a playoff spot, and so I think it's that combination of record but also disappointment that maybe is holding Ingram back. Now, there is no question he has made big leaps, not just from a statistical standpoint, but from a mentality standpoint, really getting into that um, you know, more attack-minded, confident game rather than being tentative, watching LeBron do it last year and trying to play off of him in a secondary role. So it's been beautiful to see that growth. You know, Michael, I used to call Brandon Ingram a Noah's Ark player because it was always two by two. It wasn't enough ones at the free throw line. It wasn't enough, you know, threes from beyond the arc. He has shed that label. Uh, the three, the increase in threes has corresponded with a dip percentage-wise in how many mid-range shots he's taking. Um, to me, that's great because his length and his ability to take people off the dribble from the three-point line and get to the rim is his biggest attribute. Of course, uh, I wish... You know he can keep up his improved free throw shooting as well because that's a a big time um, asset that you know was a question mark in, in previous years, frankly. And I guess layered on top of all of those developments, it's great that he's been healthy. Mm -hmm. It was really scary at the end of last season for him to kind of bounce back from that, look great, um, and you know just be in a, a better frame of mind and, and just really killing it like he should be during a contract year. I think um, all those are positive indicators, and hopefully for him and for that organization, uh, the wins will come. He has all-star numbers, but we're we're basically confident that like his name will not even enter the conversation just because of how bad the team is, right? For sure, and like you know, look back to Julius Randle last year too, right? I mean, and I guess AD was still there, but like you know, guys like that. I think when your when your team is that bad, and there's so much talent in the Western Conference, especially at that position. I mean, look. 
you're going to get through LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George, and those are just the wings in LA, like let alone the rest of the conference. I mean, good luck. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, to answer the second part of that question, the, the Tatum part, um, no, Tatum's better. I'm just gonna <laughs> gonna leave, leave it there. I, <laughs> wow. I mean, well, well, the thing about Tatum is we've seen him do it in the playoffs. We've seen him contribute to winning at a, an extremely high level. Uh, we don't have any doubts about uh, his ability to get threes up in different ways. Like a lot of a lot of Ingram's threes are just because you know Drew Holiday draws two and then kicks out, or, or like they're just spot threes. He has a lot of time. He has space. Defenses are letting him shoot, or they, that, that's lessened a little bit since since his hot start. Uh, but Tatum is just kind of a different offensive force. I think they're super similar offensively. Uh, I think body type also plays a factor here in length and and uh, and strength and and the different types of players that Tatum can defend and, and has proven that he can defend in a playoff series. Just it just kind of tilts the scales towards him a little bit, in my opinion. Um, I think we, this is one we could go around and around on for an hour. I think at this point, I would take Ingram believing that the flashes he's shown this year are going to give him a higher ceiling in the short-term future um, and that you know his, his growth curve just is going to end up at a higher place uh, than Tatum. But I think in terms of like who's actually proven it and sustained it to this point of their careers, I think you make a strong argument uh, on behalf of Tatum. We're going to close out with a very passionate email, though, from Jimmy in Palm Bay. And just like everybody else, Jimmy emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Jimmy is following up on this idea of, you know, should you be a fan of a player or should you be a fan of a team? And we had one guy on the last episode who essentially wanted the rivalries back. He wanted blood, like the Bulls and the Pistons from the 1980s. And this is what Jimmy says. I am not necessarily calling for blood, but I am calling for people to stop just being fans of players. I will be the first to say this isn't the easiest way to watch the NBA, but in my opinion, being a fan of the team is the best way to watch the NBA. I have been an Orlando Magic fan since I can remember. I was too young to really experience the Penny and Shaq days, but I was there for the Silk and Star Jersey T-Mac days, and I was definitely there for the glorious days of Dwight Howard Jameer Nelson and Hidu Turkaloo. And I was really, really there when we were talking ourselves into big baby Glenn Davis. I have loved this organization when it was good, and I have talked myself into the team when they were bad. Last year, I was overjoyed that we made the playoffs and even won a game. Casual fans will say that a first round exit doesn't count, but to me, playing meaningful basketball matters and it's worth cheering for. To put this into perspective, I cannot and will never buy a jersey of a player if it is not an Orlando Magic jersey. When I lived in North Mississippi and traveled to Memphis for work, I would always wear Magic gear on the off chance that I ran into Penny Hardaway or Mike Miller, who are both coaches at the University of Memphis. (laughs) To me, it makes absolutely no sense for people to not have a main team they cheer for. And also, if anyone really wants quote-unquote fan amnesty, they were never truly a fan of that team in the first place, so it doesn't matter anyway. And Michael, just for your uh, your knowledge, we have offered fan amnesty to fan bases like the Bulls fan base mm-hmm. and others to try to sign them up for Giannis Inc. in the past, so that's what he's referring to. He's taken a hard-line position against that, which I appreciate. 
He continues, don't get me wrong. I love the NBA and I follow other teams and players. I love LeBron and Harden as much as the next guy. In fact, one of the reasons I like your show when I started listening a couple years ago was because you guys were high on Giannis in the early days. I am a big fan of players who are not on the magic. I am not saying you can't follow these players, but to me, you are a casual fan if you do not live and die with your team's success. So he goes on from there, Michael, but heater take from Jimmy, the Orlando Magic fan. I'm curious, what do you make of his passion? Do you wish we saw more of this? Because I got to say, we hear from, you know, some diehard fan bases every once in a while. We do not hear from very many Orlando Magic fan. And there's a lot of team out there that I kind of question, do they have their version of Jimmy, you know, Uh, or who exactly are these people in the seats? I I mean, I respect anyone who will wear their team's gear just because they want to run into former players in public. That is uh, (laughs) a great that's a commitment that is unparalleled. And shout out to him for that. Um, I I mean, I get where he's coming from. Well, yeah, side story. (laughs) I ran in when I was in high school. I ran into Penny Hardaway on Venice Beach. I was down in L.A. for God knows what. And I don't remember exactly what I said. But I made Penny Hardaway laugh, and it was the highlight of my life. It actually probably still is the highlight of my life. So, Jimmy, you're limping vicariously through me. You may have never had your Orlando Magic jersey or your, uh, on when you met Penny, but just know two <laughs> degrees of separation. I've got you covered. That's that's incredible. Um, I guess I, I, I should f- like uh, match your story with my own random running into a player story uh, that I was a fan of. I once saw... Uh, Ray Allen at a shopping mall in uh, Natick, Massachusetts, and I was too afraid to approach him. And that's the end of that oh, story. No. <laughs> yeah. It's a lifelong regret, Michael. Well, you need to like dig, dig him up out of retirement and tell him that. I'm sure he would be just honored and touched to know that. I know. I never really got to cover Ray Allen either, which is just, it's, yeah, this is, I'm bringing up just a really sore subject right now for me, but. Uh, I mean, <laughs> well, it's full circle from the spiders to the repressed memories of, uh, you know, teenage uh, uh, fear at Ray Allen's expenses. But anyway, continue. sure. Uh, but I mean, bottom line is, I totally get where uh, where Jimmy's coming from with his feelings on this. I think we've covered it. It's it's generational. Honestly, that's the best way I can explain it with with people who are who would prefer to be fans of, of players than teams. Uh, I think the one, the one thing about being a fan of a team and, you know, only watching one team is you really cheat yourself. Uh, there's so many special players right now and the talent pool is so broad that I think you cheat yourself a little bit. If you're just watching Aaron Gordon miss, uh, you know, 15 pull up twos a game and, and Mo Bamba really struggling and getting pushed <laughs> out of the paint, uh, and every rebound attempt, uh, it, it is fun to watch, you know, guys grow like Jonathan Isaac and and uh, and just like the, the 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 you know Orlando's front office bringing back all those guys from the from the team that went to the first round last year. I think that that can be exciting for a fan base, but you do cheat yourself out of watching some 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 of the the, the league's talent and and um, so I think that that is the the one downside. So you're maybe. saying health. You're saying healthy balance, right? Cheer for your team, but try to find those other superstars like Jimmy is describing. It doesn't have to necessarily be either or, but having that team fandom in in your back pocket, or I guess wearing it on your chest is, is maybe the right approach. Look, I'm of mixed feelings here because 
I grew up in Portland where everybody loves the local team. And when you go on sports radio up there, like, I mean, LeBron could have 100 points. And they're going to ask you, the first question is going to be like, so what do you think of the Hassan Whiteside trade, right? Or like, <laughs> when's Zach Collins coming back, right? Like, it, it's that fishbowl mentality because that's what the fans crave. And so I completely identify with that. And that's why, you know, frankly, like, we've gotten into arguments on this podcast with, like, the Toronto Termites over the years. The reason why I go at the Termites is because I know they're going to take it and give it back, right? It's those diehard fan bases that are just all in for their guys that I respect the most out of anyone um, especially if they if they stop just short of death threats, those are my fan bases that I really lock in. And there's a couple, you know, Lakers fans, a couple others that uh, you know cross <laughs> that line every once in a while. But Jimmy, your email gave me life, man. I really appreciated it. And I gotta say though, there is a disconnect for me because number one, as a media member, you have to put that team stuff to the side. You just have to do it if you're in this national position. And so I'm now, you know, seven or eight, nine, ten years down the rabbit hole, basically not, you know, viewing the world, uh, the NBA world through a team-based perspective. Um, but also, you know, part of my own just kind of like personal sports writing and and following journey, I kind of flippantly call it being like a win connoisseur. Um, I think I've been so caught up in the very best teams, the excitement around the NBA finals, what Golden State was able to put together, what San Antonio has done over the years, um, and even individual greatness, guys like Giannis, LeBron, how much they devote to their craft, how they're all in for everything, how they play with a purpose, another one of my favorite phrases, that when I see organizations that don't share that commitment, it is so hard for me to care. And it's a constant battle. I have to remind myself, these guys do matter. These guys could make the playoffs. These guys could win a first round series. Um, You know, a lot of times I'll be dismissive about cute stories, but not every NBA team, not every NBA owner is built equally. And I think for me personally, when I hear the passion of your email, and I don't say this in a demeaning way, I almost feel sorry for you to a degree i'm not sure if the orlando magic deserve you (laughs) you know like you should be in a position where this pure love that you're putting forward is being reciprocated by an organization that deserves it so i hope for your sake that you know orlando you know strikes gold with a draft pick you have that that guy you can just ride for 20 years and it's not like a shack and penny thing where it gets cut off early Uh, it's not like a dwight howard thing which kind of went sideways too I hope it will pay off. And I do know that, you know, given how much you've invested, once those glory days do eventually come, uh, it will be more worth it for you than just about anybody else. Hey, Michael, on that note, I think it's time to call it a podcast. Guys, great questions, great emails this week. We really appreciate it. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. I'm on Twitter at Ben Golliver. You can find my link to my newsletter at the top of my Twitter profile page. And of course, Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. Hey, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, man.